Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a guest, and I'll be speaking with Dr. Shachi Tiagi, a geriatrician who is an assistant professor in the University of Pittsburgh Department of Medicine. Dr. Tiagi is a clinician researcher who focuses on a topic that I find very interesting, which is the intersection between two very common issues that come up for older adults, insomnia and having to urinate at night. So she's done some really interesting research on these two conditions and how they interact, and she has also studied how these conditions affect the risk of falls. Since I know that so many older adults experience nighttime urination, and also that many older adults are struggling with sleep and staying asleep, I'm delighted to have Dr. Tiagi join us today to help us better understand how these conditions are often connected and what can be done about them. Shachi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into these two conditions that you've been uh, studying and how they interact, I would love for us to start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background. How did you become interested in geriatrics? And then what led you to these particular topics? As you said in your introduction, that geriatrics is the art and science of modifying medicine for older adults. I think that's the part that gravitated me towards the field. As I was doing my internal medicine fellowship, uh, residency, and going through all these rotations, this is the field where I found clinicians connecting to patients in a very different way. They are friends, they were their practitioners, they were taking care of a person as a whole, rather than focusing on one disease process versus other, as we see in many of the consultant-based practices. So I find this very enticing, very interesting, and decided to take up as a career. As for the choice of topics for nighttime awakening and sleep interaction, as I was starting my practice uh, in geriatrics and even in internal medicine, when I was talking to my patients, many a times they would report poor sleep, um, inability to sleep well at night. And nobody ever told me that it's because I'm waking up so many times a night. It was hard for them to make those two dots connected they may complain of going to the bathroom frequently during the daytime or having bladder related issues but at nighttime they would go to the bathroom frequently but they would consider that as a normal part of aging which is not true so the complexity of the issue and the prevalence of these two problems 
got really interested into this topic. So it sounds like uh, you were drawn to geriatrics partly because of the kind of person-centered nature of it. You know, by its nature, it's, we can't focus on a single disease. We sort of think about the whole person. And then I think that's so interesting what you're bringing up because I, I think it's a recurring theme in our our work is that older adults will experience these problems that they uh, perceive as part of normal aging. And so they don't bring it up to their health providers. Absolutely. And it's the key to geriatrics is the word multifactorial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's always the, the patient may complain of one issue that's bothering them the most, but that one issue is stemming from at least four or five underlying problems. And if we are able to address those underlying issues, maybe 10 or 20% of their baseline, then we are able to make a huge impact in the uh, presenting symptom for the patients. So we have more opportunities to intervene and improve a health-related outcome for our older adults. Now let's talk about a term that you mentioned a little moment ago, the term nocturia, which means having to pee at night, basically. And you were just mentioning that, that you noticed your older patients would bring up sleep to you and that they were having difficulty sleeping but they often wouldn't connect it to waking up at night to pee, to nocturia, uh, because they consider this normal, whereas in fact, you would say it's not normal, although it does certainly seem to be very common in aging. And I think that's why people often get conflate what's common with what is normal. So can you tell us a little bit more about nocturia? How common is it as people get older and why does it become so common? So... Nocturia is basically a more technical term for the complaint that patients have to wake up at night to go to the bathroom. If we talk about the definition per, uh, like a standardized definition for the problem, it was set in only 2011 by International Continent Society. And it was described as the complaint to wake up at least once a night to go to the bathroom. And this episode is preceded and followed by sleep. So that is more of a technical definition. But just by the fact that it was identified and defined by a standardized definition so late, we can understand that um, this was not a priority and it was never looked in depth by uh, clinicians and researchers until recently. So it is very common with aging, and uh, there are few epidemiological studies that have looked into the prevalence of this problem. Interestingly, most of the nocturia research is done in the field of urology, and because it's done in that field, they have always associated nighttime awakening to void with other lower urinary tract symptoms like overactive bladder or having to go to the bathroom frequently during the daytime or with prostate issues in men. So previously, this research was mostly conducted in people who do have some baseline urinary issues to start with and to see 
among those people how frequent nighttime awakening to void or nocturia is. However, there, more recently, there has been more research um, and studies looking into the prevalence among older adults without any other uh, urinary problems. So in general, the few studies that have been done, they put the prevalence as high as uh, 30% to about 40, 45% varying on the study that you look at as the prevalence of nighttime awakening among people age 60 and older. And a very interesting study was actually conducted quite a few years ago, more so I want to say about late 90s or so. And that was the study that was done by National Sleep Foundation. And the researchers looked at the data from National Sleep Foundation and analyzed telephone interviews with uh, people around the US, 18 years and older, to find out what their sleep pattern is and what wakes them up at night. Interestingly, in that study, about 30% of people aged 18 to 45 reported waking up at night to go to the bathroom. And this reporting increased to over 75% among those aged 65 and over. So you can imagine that while there is some data that suggests that maybe 30 to 40% of the people may be waking up at night to go to the bathroom, this sleep research shows that it could be as high as 70%. I'll, I'll admit that actually, uh, after I had my children, you know, yes. I felt like my pattern changed mm -hmm. <laughs> and that often I would wake up during the night and I wasn't sure if it was about, you know, the whole pregnancy experience changing, you know, things there or that I didn't do the right exercises. But I think you're bringing up a good point that it's, uh, it may be more common than we realize even among people who uh, are under 60. Absolutely. But it does seem to become more common as people get older. And so what causes this? And is it different for people who are going just once versus people who are going several times? So you bring a very good point about the frequency as to how many times is too many. For this specific question, there is some data in urology literature that suggests that nighttime awakening to void is completely, totally related to if the person is able to return to sleep. If after one awakening, a person is not able to return to sleep, they are bothered by it and it's a problem. And there would be a few of your patients and I'm sure you have seen them in your clinic that they wake up three times a night, but they're able to return to sleep and it doesn't bother them. Mm -hmm. So many a times, it depends on what the patient is experiencing and how bothered the patient is by the symptoms. As to the causes, as you know, we discussed earlier in our interview, multifactorial is the key to the game here. There are several causes that lead to nocturia, especially among the elderly. And these causes, of course, it could be bladder related, where people who do have symptoms related to overactive bladder and increased frequency of going to the bathroom during daytime, over a period of time as they age, 
they do not allow their bladders to hold large volumes of urine. So the bladder gets um, irritated and the bladder sends urge signals to void at smaller volumes. So even when they are sleeping at smaller volumes, their bladder urges them to wake up and go to the bathroom. So that's one cause that we usually see among people who do have daytime symptoms as well. But even among those who may or may not have daytime symptoms, for people who drink a lot of water, who drink a lot of fluid, all that fluid has to come out. And so drinking plenty of water, polyuria throughout the day causes a nighttime awakening. And then sleep-related disorders is a big one on the list. And among sleep-related disorders, the most common and undiagnosed condition that leads to nocturia is sleep apnea. Mm. It's mostly missed among um, all age groups, actually. It's not a problem with geriatrics per se. It is the most commonly missed condition uh, people don't realize because not every apnea person, apnea patient snores at night. It's a misnomer that people relate that I don't snore, so I cannot have sleep apnea, or I am not too fat, so I cannot have sleep apnea. Even people who are fit or who may not snore may have sleep apnea. So sleep apnea per se can cause nocturia because it increases nighttime urine production and causes frequent awakenings at night to go to the bathroom to avoid that volume. So, sorry, sleep apnea in of itself increases nighttime urine? Yes, sleep apnea in itself does that. And actually, when I was reading one of your papers, you mentioned this term, which I had not been very familiar with, which was nocturnal polyuria, which was defined as you know, having a, a, a larger proportion of your daily urine output happening at night. And I thought, oh, that's actually very interesting. It hadn't occurred to me that certain health conditions might actually be associated with more urination at night than you might otherwise have. Absolutely. And all the research that has been done, all the data that has been collected in nocturia-related literature, it points very clearly that the most common cause among older adults for nocturia is this increased nighttime urine production. They produce more urine at night, their bladder gets full, and they are up all night peeing that volume. Mm -hmm. And so sleep apnea is a common condition that is associated with that. But of course, there must be other reasons why people might be tending to produce more urine at night. And so if they seem to be doing that, they shouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that they have sleep apnea. Absolutely. There are more reasons uh, to it than just sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a very small proportion of the problem. One of the most common cause of nocturnal polyuria among older adults is lower extremity swelling. Mm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it may or may not be related to any heart-related condition, lower extremity swelling or edema is a very common condition that we see among our older adults. Um, it's highly prevalent. And at nighttime, when they are laying in bed and the effect of gravity is removed, all that extra fluid goes back into their circulatory system. And all that extra fluid that body does not need 
heart sends it to kidneys that, hey, I don't need this extra fluid. Kidneys filter it out, send it to bladder. And next thing you know, those patients are up all night peeing that volume out that they had been carrying in their legs through the day. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a very good point as well. Well, I like that you brought up that when an older person is, is having difficulty sleeping, that it's important to look into that for what are the underlying causes. Often there are several, because as we were saying in older adults, most uh, problems tend to be multifactorial and have several causes or contributors that are intersecting and not a single one. And I did do a podcast episode, it's now almost, I think, two years ago on common causes of sleep problems in older adults and a related article. And yes, you know, you know, sleep apnea is one of them that people often don't think about or other underlying medical problems, and that it's so important for people to understand this and ask their health providers for help, looking into what is the underlying cause before jumping to a treatment right. um, like a sleeping pill, <laughs> which is problematic for, for other reasons, because, you know, maybe it is sleep apnea or, or something else. So that idea of thinking about what are the underlying causes or contributors and having that inform our plan for addressing a bothersome symptom is just so important. Now, sleep also changes as people get, get older. So in your, your studies, what did you sort of find out about how having this waking up and urination interacts with sleep problems? Sleep and nighttime awakening to void, they have a bi-directional relationship. For the longest period, it was considered that because the bladder is waking a person up, their sleep is disrupted. So nocturia causes sleep disruption and hence leads to insomnia and daytime symptoms of poor sleep in that person. However, what I argue is that it's the other way around as well, where poor sleep also leads to frequent awakening, and then a person may decide to use the bathroom. So for example, if I ask my patient that how many times you wake up at night to go to the bathroom, I will get an answer like two or three or how many number. And then I ask, what wakes you up? Does your bladder say, knock, knock, we have to go to the bathroom now? Or do you go to the bathroom because you were up and you decided to avoid otherwise thinking that your bladder will wake you up in an hour from now? So that question, for most part, is usually very hard for patients to answer. So it's, it's a very overlapping complaint uh, where it's very hard clinically to discern what comes first? Is it nocturia waking the person up or is it poor sleep causing nocturia? And on that note, sleep is very important to regulate our nighttime urine production. So as a child is born, our kidneys are producing urine at the same rate throughout the day. So we have to change diaper day or night. It doesn't matter. It needs to be changed at equal interval. It doesn't matter the time of the day. As a kid hits the age of three to five, like you know, before they start the kindergarten class, there is a circadian rhythm that starts to come to our urine production, wherein our kidneys are producing more urine during the day. However, there is more 
concentration of urine at nighttime, the volume decreases at nighttime so that the volume can be stored in the bladder through the night so that the awakening doesn't happen and the person can only wake up in the morning and void. So there is a rhythm that comes to the rate of urine production early enough in our age. And when we look at young patient population, younger person, they produce 20% or less of their 24-hour urine output at nighttime and rest is all produced. And at nighttime, I mean during their sleep. Compared, and, and this circadian rhythm sort of flips as we age. And that's what we don't know why that exactly happens. Even in people who may not have lower extremity edema, who may not have any poorly controlled diabetes, or who may not be in acute heart failure with all those clinical conditions being adequately controlled, we have seen that these older adults, they produce excess of you know, uh, 33% or even more during sleep rather than during the daytime. So if we divide our day into thirds, so if ideally you know, a person is spending maybe eight hours in bed, so a third of the day they are spending in bed. So even if there is no circadian rhythm to our kidneys uh, for urine production, technically speaking, they should be excreting only a third of the 24-hour volume during that eight hour of sleep. And that rhythm doesn't happen and flips and we have seen 50% or more of the 24-hour urine output being excreted during the sleep. Now, is that happening to a large proportion of people as they get older or just a significant minority? So this data comes from people who already have some underlying bladder issues. So it's hard to extrapolate um, how, you know, the actual prevalence of this condition, but that's what those uh, bladder diary data suggests from people with lower urinary tract symptoms that older adults are excreting excess of 30, 35 to 40% of their urine output during sleep. Right. Well, we're not going to be able to go into all the um, bladder issues during this episode. Maybe we could do that for another one <laughs> because I'm sure the, the audience would be interested. But I will say that, you know, having urinary issues is very common among older adults, you know, whether it's related to the prostate in men or, you know, women also, it's quite common. So, so just given that lots of older adults are experiencing other urinary issues, it sounds like it would be a, a really significant proportion of people who are experiencing this extra uh, urine production at night, which is then going to, I guess, make it um, be a potential cause for them to be waking up and disrupting their their sleep. So, so earlier we mentioned how it's 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 important to you know when an older person is reporting sleep difficulties to not assume it's garden variety insomnia and to look into it to make sure there's not an underlying medical condition. And you mentioned that sleep apnea is probably more common than people realize and is often overlooked. And a certain amount of the sleep difficulty is, you know, ends up getting after evaluation looking like it's, you know, garden variety insomnia. You have an opportunity to sleep and you're not. And so you have done, you know, some research on the treatment of 
that kind of insomnia and how it's affected by nocturia. Could you um, first start by just briefly reviewing for us, you know, what are the recommended ways to treat insomnia in older adults? To address insomnia in, in any patient, the key is first uh, to get a comprehensive history. Make sure if we can identify what's triggering insomnia. Insomnia is commonly associated with other medical issues like you know, bladder issues we talked about, other psychiatric illnesses like depression, anxiety, or uh, sleep apnea as we discussed. So if we can identify a treatable cause, addressing that cause would be imperative. Um, but if it is what we call you know, uh, primary insomnia where they have difficulty falling or staying asleep, I think approach to the patient is first and foremost would be to have a good routine. Our body and our sleep pattern works better if our body knows that this is our time to bed and this is our time up. Our body can always train better to that if time to bed varies or time out of bed varies. Uh, our rhythm, our circadian rhythm uh, has difficulty uh, adjusting to those changes every day and it disrupts sleep. So having a good routine to the day um, and night is, is uh, extremely important. Other things that we always address uh, with our patients with insomnia is their nighttime routines. Uh, is there a television in bed? How much is the screen time? How close, like are they using a phone or an iPad close to bedtime? These all disrupt sleep, cause uh, difficulty falling asleep, as well as cause frequent awakening throughout the night. Other nighttime routines that sometimes patients feel that they are helpful to them to help fall asleep, like having a glass of wine at bedtime. They may feel that that helps them fall asleep, but that definitely causes disruption in sleep maintenance and causes frequent awakening throughout the night. So addressing those issues is imperative among our older adults. Right. And, um, and it sounds like a lot of what you've described is sometimes, you know, packaged as a, you know, behavioral treatment. Absolutely. of insomnia. And I think in one of your studies published a few years ago, uh, it was studying a group where, where half of them had been given a brief behavioral treatment package. Yes. That I guess provided some instructions. And then I, I know I've also heard for insomnia, and I think it has been uh, proven to be effective, would be um, cognitive behavioral therapy interventions. Can you briefly speak about those? Cognitive behavioral uh, therapy is a proven behavioral measure to address insomnia. It is uh, provider intensive, it's labor intensive in the way that it needs, you know, a provider, uh, a nurse practitioner or a, or a psychologist to deliver. Brief behavioral treatment of insomnia uh, was brief, as the name says, and it can be delivered by nurses and other staff who can be trained to deliver. So it increases the number of providers who can administer the treatment, which is the best part of the treatment. So it can reach out to a larger patient population. And this treatment actually stands on four pillars. There are four main components. And the first component is actually counterintuitive and the first component talks about 
mildly restricting time in bed. And when we talk about that, patients turn around and say, I am already having difficulty sleeping. And you are talking about restricting my time in bed. And how is that going to work? And I will still feel more sleepy during the day. But the reason why we want to restrict time in bed is because we want to consolidate sleep. So what we are trying to reduce is the time that they spend awake in bed is what we are trying to reduce so that when they go to bed, they are sleepy, they have a deep, restful sleep, even if it's smaller in, in time interval than, say, you know, spending nine or 10 hours in bed. So, and how we do that is establishing a regular wake-up time, establishing a regular time to bed throughout the week. And then if a person says that they woke up and had to go to the bathroom or for whatever reason, if they woke up and they're not able to fall back asleep, we ask them to leave the bed and do some other activity and come back to bed only when you are sleepy because we want their brain to associate bed as a place where I go and I sleep, not as a place where I go and then I toss and turn and not able to sleep. So we have to make that disconnection and we have to enforce bed as a place where they go and sleep. And when we talk about leaving the bed and getting out of bed, if you're not able to fall asleep, when a person, a patient is there in clinic, you talk to them and come up with the activities that they may do at that time of the night. For example, you know, you do your laundry in the day, but do not fold the laundry so that when you wake up in the night, maybe you can just go and sit and fold the laundry. So it should be something that's not very stimulating. Some people like to read. Some people like to listen to music. It would be patient, patient would tell us what they could or uh, would do when they're up at that time of the night. And bringing a regularity to the schedule and not spending awake time in bed addresses it significantly, which is the key to BBTI or brief behavioral treatment of insomnia. So, and this has been shown to be effective. Uh, and at the same time, people are often asked for a sleeping pill and people are often given prescribed such medications when they bring up their sleep difficulties to their health providers. But we in geriatrics tend to be very cautious about sleeping pills. So would you mind briefly reviewing for us, you know, the, the, the problem with going with that approach? So there are several sleeping pills available and have been tested extensively. However, I would add that Usually these pills are tested in younger patient population and we do not know how they would affect an older person as well as their interaction with the other meds that the person may, may be taking. These pills tend to linger in the system longer, cause daytime symptoms, daytime sleepiness, tiredness, fatigue symptoms, which a person may be having while while being on those pills and call, contribute to falls and fractures, which has been shown in research before. In addition, these pills sometimes, most of the times, uh, what they do is they help a patient fall asleep. 
but they are not very good at maintaining sleep, which is usually the most common problem that we see with older adults where they have difficulty maintaining sleep through the night. And depending on, I have seen patients who have no difficulty falling asleep, so they may decide to take a sleeping pill when they are up at night and not able to fall asleep. But then taking that pill later in the night causes more significant daytime symptoms and spoils or ruins the sleep for the next night as well. So they are not a good idea. Yes. So so we just heard it from a, a an expert on, you know, nighttime issues in older adults. Be very careful about those medications. Right. And it's not only the sleeping pills that a physician may prescribe. I have developed this habit of asking my patients if they are taking anything. Oh, the over-the-counter ones. Most people know that Benadryl will make you sleepy, and it's something right. similar to that that is in all the over-the-counter sleep aids, in the PM painkillers, the NyQuil. We actually just did a, a few episodes on the beers criteria. Oh, yes. Recently, and we're talking about how these sedatives and uh, anticholinergics, many of them like Benadryl, are on the, the, the beers list because they have been shown to be risky for older adults in many ways. But I think people turn to them because often they, they are having these difficulties at night and they want relief and they, they don't know or they aren't offered options such as the brief behavioral insomnia therapy that you were describing. So I would say it's important to ask health providers about those options and about the non-drug options because often there, there are options that are available and that have been shown to be effective. And sometimes, you know, if I may just add yes. that, uh, you know, sometimes primary providers may feel that, you know, uh, delivering such a treatment will take time and I have only so much time to spend with my patient and they're prioritized. What sometimes I ask my patients to do is to keep a simple diary at home that you wake up in the morning and you put down on a diary. Last night, I went to bed this time and I woke up these many times. And this morning I woke up this time. That's it. Just three questions that you write for yourself every day. And then just take it to your provider. You go over it and you see if you're going to the bed, how many, you know, what are the variations in your time to bed? What are the variations on your time up? And how many times are you waking up at night? And that simple information can lead to various um, ideas that you may discuss with your provider to address insomnia. And so now in the research that you published a few years ago, you looked at this group, this study where older adults had been, uh, half of them had been offered brief behavioral treatment for insomnia. And you kind of looked at the role that the nighttime urination was playing. So what did you find? This was the study that was conducted by a sleep group. So they did not address any bladder-related issue. They did not address any daytime bladder symptoms. They totally focused on sleep. And what we found was that in this completely dedicated towards sleep, with this intervention, as the sleep improved in these participants, so did their nocturia. Now, I do not have, you know, a bladder diary to say if, you know, they were producing less urine at night or what was the exact cause why their nocturia improved. Nonetheless, it's very clear that if people are sleeping better, they are not waking up 
to go to the bathroom. So there is there was no intervention to change their intake pattern. There was no change in their bladder-related symptom. There was no intervention to address those. But just by addressing sleep, they were able to sleep better, sleep through the night, not wake up at night to go to the bathroom, which brings us to that bi-directional relation that it's not only nocturia that's disrupting sleep, but it's disrupted sleep that may also cause nocturia. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of a, it can be a two for one. Absolutely. Treatment that just doing one of these um, behavioral treatments for sleep as the sleep improves, the nighttime urination may improve as well. Well, let's focus a little bit more again on nocturia. I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about what you recommend in terms of having it be evaluated and then managed. What are, if someone has been waking up to, to urinate, what are the key steps in getting evaluated? So evaluation always, always starts with a good history. And keys to a good history for nocturia is uh, assessing their bladder-related symptom. That mm-hmm. should be the first, making sure what their daytime symptoms look like, because sometimes just addressing daytime bladder symptoms would help. In addition, talking about their fluid intake pattern, many a times we, you know, I'm sure you have seen that too. People have a happy hour at night or they, you know, their caffeine intake. Uh, many times patients don't realize that the soda pop they're drinking has a lot of caffeine in it. So their fluid and caffeine intake is important. They're just a good general history taking. Are, are the people constipated because of that? Are they not able to void properly and they are retaining some urine there? Any pain-related issues because they may their sleep disruption could be related to pain. And then after good history taking, it always comes down to the medications that they are taking. There are several medications that may contribute to these nighttime awakenings to void. For example, many of our patients who may have heart-related condition, they may be on a class of medication called diuretics, which makes them uh, go to the bathroom more frequently. Sometimes patients don't realize and they may be taking these kind of medications a little later in the night, and that may be contributing to increased nighttime urine production and these awakenings. Other times, if there are anticholinergic medications on board, over a period of time, they can also cause fluid retention and uh, constipation, dry mouth sort of symptoms, which again contributes to increased urine production during day and night and contributes to nocturia. So a good history taking uh, evaluation uh, would include as well as uh, the medications that they're taking. And then examining the patient, making sure they don't have lower extremity edema, addressing that. And edema is uh, swelling. Edema is swelling. Swelling of the legs where the legs are puffy and when you sort of squeeze, it leaves a dent in there. Right. So looking at the person as a whole to figure out what, because for most patients, it's more than one cause Mm -hmm. that's leading to these nighttime awakenings. So we cannot focus on just the bladder, or we cannot just focus on uh, heart or their diabetes. It is everything put together. There is more than one cause that that leads to these nighttime awakenings. So 
um, good history taking, good examination. And then it sounds like you mentioned also just a journal of what is going on at night. Absolutely. So, so that's what I always ask my uh, patients to do, keep a three-day diary of how many times are they going to the bathroom. We call it a bladder diary. It's, it's sometimes cumbersome, but it gives us wealth of information and helps direct treatment so much better. And what I ask them to do is to put down the time they went to the bathroom and how much they voided. So, um, you know, we may give our female patients a hat to put on their commode um, or a urinal for our male patients and they can measure the volume. And they have to do it for three days and they have to put down the voids during the day as well as night and measure the volumes for each void. That tells us exactly about the rhythm of urine production that we were talking about. What percentage are they excreting in the daytime and what percent are they excreting while they're sleeping? So it sounds like, you know, again, the, the key to successful management is to start off with a thorough evaluation to identify those underlying causes, contributors, and, and triggers, and then to, to work on, on addressing those. Exactly. So I want to now move on to something else that I know you've studied, which is the relationship between the nighttime urination and the, the sleep problems and how that is related to the risk of falls. And I know that's something that, you know, sometimes older uh, patients mention to me, but especially families, mm-hmm. that the older person is getting up at night to urinate and then falls or almost falls. And we probably, certainly you and I, I'm sure have heard of older people who have, who have fallen during the night when they went out to, to go to the bathroom and have sometimes not been found for a bit if they lived alone or even if they were just in a room and it wasn't easy for them to call for help for someone else in in the house. So what have you learned about this particular issue and, and what can be done to address falls or near falls in an older person who's getting up at night to urinate? This topic is so interesting with falls and nighttime awakenings. But if, you, if we try to see, you know, uh, how well has this been looked, it's, it's rather not looked into very, uh, into great detail uh, by researchers, unfortunately, though we see it all the time in our clinic. So what we know is that at least a third of our older adults, they fall, um, they have fallen at least in the past year. So it's a very high instance rate. And you can imagine that a person is sleeping in bed, they are all relaxed, they are, you know, as we sleep, our blood pressure goes down, which is a normal reaction, which is normally what happens with everybody. And then boom, you wake up because you have to go to the bathroom. And then there is this urgency that I have to rush before I leak. So you're rushing to the bathroom and the person just jumps out of the bed to go to the bathroom so that they can reach there before you leak. The next thing you know, the blood pressure is already low. You stand up, pressure falls even more, and boom, perfect recipe for a fall. So one thing that I always talk to my patients about is first educate them. Once they know that this is a risk, they are always more careful. Second, for male patients, sometimes using a urinal in bed. Yes. For women, a bedside commode. It may not be the ideal situation 
patients sometimes do not like the idea of having a bedside commode next to their bed. However, many people understand that safety is important and it's better to have it there rather than to have a fall. Yes, and by bedside commode, you mean, um, I'm not sure everyone in the audience will understand what that is, but it's kind of the, the sort of portable toilet Yes, that you can get sometimes as durable medical equipment. It's like a little chair with a special potty to go to, and that way people are able to go to the bathroom without going as far right. as their usual toilet, but for men, sometimes just a urinal. Absolutely. And I will tell you, one of my patients, she, she was very averse to the idea, but after much deliberation and thinking, she did get one. And she said that when the urge wakes her up at night now, just because she knows that there is a bedside commode and she doesn't have to rush to the bathroom, which is a little farther away, her urges calm down. And now she's able, actually able to walk to the bathroom instead of using the commode, just because she has this feeling that if I am in a rush, I can still use it. So, so she doesn't feel so rushed. That's such a fun story. And I think that speaks to, you know, some of what you've otherwise been alluding to, which is, you know, the power of the mind. Absolutely. And the mind's effect on the body and that a lot of what you were speaking about earlier about, you know, routines related to sleep and other things is about recreating the routines and the right kind of mental signals and the way the mind and the body are signaling each other. Right. And that sometimes people have gone into a pattern where the mind and body are signaling each other in a way that amps each other up. Exactly. It's like a vicious circle. When you're anxious of, oh my gosh, I have to go, then your bladder almost feels like more noticeable. And then, you know, you can kind of create all this tension that is worse because there, just by realizing she didn't have to rush. Absolutely. That is, is quite something. So, so it sounds like one approach. So, so that would be one, yes. To reduce the distance they have to go. Reduce to the, the distance that they have to walk at mm -hmm. nighttime. The other thing that I always talk to them about is even when the urge wakes you up, it's, it's better to use a protection and sit at the edge of the bed for a couple seconds before getting up, mm -hmm. which is a common thing that we talk to our patients to prevent, you know, blood pressure fall, standing up and mm -hmm. prevent this lightheadedness and dizziness. And the other common thing that uh, patients can always do is to leave some nightlight on. Mm -hmm. You know, when you wake up at night, if it's completely dark and you're rushing, um, that may end up being a dangerous situation. So having a hallway light on or some nightlight on that would help you guide your way to the bathroom is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it sounds like also just, you know, uh, if possible, going into an evaluation of this nighttime urinating and the things that you were mentioning before, the daytime symptoms, when are they taking in right. fluids? You said that some people start to create more urine at night and that we're still kind of learning about why that is. And so yes. we may not yet be at the point where we can help them reduce their nighttime urine production other than saying, don't drink a lot of soda pop before bedtime. Yes. Trying to avoid um, excess amount of fluids closer to bedtime, um, mm -hmm. especially anything that may have caffeine in it. And when we talk about restricting fluids, it's a double-edged sword that I always struggle with when I am talking about it with my, when I'm discussing this with my patients. Because to be honest, 
most of my patients, and I'm sure you have seen that too, they always try to restrict their fluids. They are trying not to drink enough. So that's one topic that it depends on who is, whom you're talking to. Many a times, you know, I find myself more times encouraging my patients to drink more fluids rather than asking them to restrict even when they are waking up at night to go to the bathroom. Well, so many of them have had some issue with urine leaking. Exactly. Um, that they they don't want to have leaks. They don't want to feel like they have to rush to the bathroom. We should discuss this in another episode, just the whole uh, phenomenon of having urinary problems as people get older. And because they're often not given the right evaluation and then assistance in addressing it. And so people self-manage by drinking less. <laughs> right. And then they can be prone to have, you know, mild dehydration, which is not so good for them either. So, so yes, I think I agree with you that it can be tricky to figure out the, the balance because we also have some other people who are drinking uh, probably more water than they need to because concerned family members are encouraging them or they've heard that, you know, if you drink tons of water, you're going to flush out toxins and be healthy. Yes. <laughs> right. So, yeah, finding the, uh, the Goldilocks middle approach can be challenging. Now, on, while we're talking about, you know, the sleep difficulties and urinating at night and falls, what about for your older patients who also are having memory problems? Because I feel like that's another incredibly common combination, <laughs> right? In part because all of, you know, all of these, all four, I guess, yeah, all four issues become more common as people get older. Um, Absolutely. You know, vulnerability to falls, urination at night sleep difficulties for a variety of reasons, and then potentially memory problems, which will also be made worse if they're taking an over-the-counter sleep aid or prescription sleep aid. But the challenge with people who are having, you know, some memory problems is that this, what you were mentioning about, you know, take your time, wait, those can be hard for them to remember. So what have you, what has been your approach with, with those people? So in our patients with memory issue, Looking at their medications is is usually the first thing that I do, because many a times we do find medications which may or may not be helpful and may even be contributing to not only the urinary symptoms, but the mood-related symptoms as well as sleep. So that's usually uh, my first go-to thing. Then addressing sleep in the patients with memory issue is imperative. Many a times we do blame it on bladder and nocturia, but dementia and poor sleep, they go hand in hand. People with memory issue, they are more prone to develop sleep-related difficulties. Their sleep pattern changes and their nighttime sleep is very disrupted. And it's There are several reasons that have been looked into it. There is change in their circadian rhythm patterns because of which their sleep is disrupted. But one of the most common cause is because they have, they they don't have, they are not involved in much of the activities during the daytime. And if you're not tired during the day, the nighttime sleep is affected. Mm -hmm. So many a times it's blamed on bladder or nocturia, but it's actually a sleep problem. Mm -hmm. And if 
you know, by in encouraging and involving them in daytime activities like, you know, day centers or increase uh, stimulation throughout the day where they are kept busy and, and kept up, it just improves their nighttime sleep without any other intervention. Yes, I remember reading a study about that where it was a behavioral intervention for dementia caregivers that did involve routine and during the daytime exposure to outside and physical activity, you know, I think to, you know, again, give them that stimulation and exercise during the day. Depends on the place where you're living. And I know California is sunny, but uh, you oh, know, not San Francisco, but <laughs> all right, we're but Fog City you, here. <laughs> if, if you come to Pittsburgh, it's most days are cloudy. We we rarely see sun, especially through long winter long winters. Mm -hmm. And if there is no sun sunlight exposure, even for our patients, for example, our nursing home residents, they are in this indoor area. They rarely go out, especially during winter time. There is no sun exposure. And those things are detrimental to nighttime sleep. So we have to increase uh, daytime light exposure for these uh, patients to have a good nighttime sleep. I haven't usually had any of my patients be involved with it, but I've certainly you know, looked it up and read about it. But I think you can get light boxes to provide yes. some of that light exposure, which helps cue, you know, we've mentioned a few times this term, the circadian rhythm. But you know, there's this internal clock for the body that is meant to be regulating bodily functions. And you mentioned that it's actually involved in regulating when you urinate and also when you sleep. And it relies on certain cues to keep it set. And one of them is exposure to light. And, uh, and I think it tends to get weaker in general in older adults for a variety of reasons. And dementia itself can affect it. But, you know, increased exposure to light and other activities can, can help set it a little bit more on track. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think people are sometimes told by providers, oh, well, you know, dementia affects sleep, which is true. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done. Right. Because as you're pointing out, focusing on that routine, the light exposure, other ways to kind of reinforce the circadian rhythm and then enough activity can make it uh, more likely that a person with dementia will spend more time at night asleep. Right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, great. Well, Shachi, this has been so wonderfully informative. I want to keep asking you questions about all of these, but, but I think we have to be mindful of the time. So maybe we can just wrap up by summarizing a few practical suggestions for the audience. So for people who've been listening, if they've been concerned about nighttime urination in themselves or in an older parent, can we just recap the sort of key things for them to keep in mind and maybe, you know, ask their health providers about? So key points would be, are you waking up at night to go to the bathroom? And is that disrupting your sleep? How is that affecting your sleep pattern and um, causing daytime symptoms for you? If it is, then definitely bring it up to your providers. Talk to your provider about this nighttime sleep disruption. Discuss with them. What could be the causes if it's related to bladder or is it actually related to sleep? Try and identify the cause of it and address it accordingly. Behavioral approach to sleep is effective and most safe without any side effects. 
And this is something that you can do by yourself at home uh, without much help if you keep a diary and a journal to keep track of it objectively for yourself. But an important part would be to talk to your provider about the medications you are taking, the indication for each medication that you are on, and the time of administration of each medication. Those all affect our rhythm, our daytime activity, as well as nighttime sleep. So paying attention to those things is extremely important. Great. Thank you so much. Any last favorite resources to share to help people out, either for them to learn more about this or to get helpful um, diary worksheets or anything like that? Do you know of any particularly good websites? Since Nocturia was mostly researched by urology, uh, that's where most of the resources still are available. And also it has a huge overlap with bladder-related issues. So if you go to the American Urologic Association website, they have links for Nocturia and even uh, keeping a diary, like a bladder diary, uh, which is extremely helpful and objectively tells even for the patients themselves to look at what their patterns look like. Great. Well, I will find that and put a link to it in the show notes. Shachi, thank you so very much for telling us about this and for researching this, you know, to come up with more practical solutions for providers like us and all of our patients. Thank you, Leslie, for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk to your listeners about this topic. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.